Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. That's Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrifices to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Helen, for our reading this morning. Good morning, everybody. My name is Adam. I'm the vicar of St. Jude's. It's lovely to welcome you with us, whether you're joining us live on Facebook or YouTube or Zoom or whether you're watching uh, later. Uh, let's just have a, another word of prayer before we go into this passage. We've just heard read uh, again, as it says in a number of these letters, let them, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our ears, open our eyes, so that we would know what you are saying to us through this scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There are some verses of scripture that when you read them, they give you, I think, something like a bit of a metaphorical hug. Maybe be still and know that I am God, or um, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'd like to suggest this passage probably isn't one. It is, however, challenging and perhaps deeply relevant if Jesus were writing to the church in the West today, specifically the church in the United Kingdom, I wonder if his letter might sound something similar. We're continuing to go through these seven letters, and we're going through them uh, as the postman might deliver the mail. We've got a little map uh, we can show them to you. They'd have to be quite a fit postman, because there's about 50 miles uh, between the different uh, churches that there are. Uh, last week, we were in Smyrna, uh, and uh, Joss helped us to think about Smyrna, particularly in the persecuted church. Uh, and the week before, uh, we were in Ephesus, uh, where we thought about, remember, your first love. You've forgotten the love you had at first. Sam was there. You can see them on this map here. Uh, that we're directly above both Smyrna and Ephesus here in Pergamon, uh, a bit inland. 
Uh, and Sam said when we thought about Ephesus that it was a very cosmopolitan place. And uh, if perhaps you could re- relate it to New York. Well, if Ephesus is New York, then Pergamon is the Washington, D.C. of its time. It was a center of power. It was a center of power before the Romans took it over, but it was the Roman center of power in the East. It was a place of significance, and power was really a watchword for the place. There were many, many temples. It was built on a hill, and on the top of the hill was a temple uh, to, the emperor, uh, to Zeus, there were three temples there to the Roman emperor. There was a temple for healing, a very famous temple for healing, where you could go and be covered in snakes, because apparently that would do something for you. Not sure what it would do, uh, but there we go. It certainly wouldn't help my fear of snakes. Or maybe it would. Maybe, maybe that's what I need. There was a temple for knowledge. It had the second largest library in the world outside of Alexandra. There was a temple for justice. There were temples for food and indeed temples for wine. But we know very little about the church in Pergamon other than what we read about in this letter. But I think that Jesus has got three simple messages for the church in Pergamon and helpfully for us today. Helpfully because they are three, all beginning with the same letter, which helps with my sermon. They are remember the truth, Remember the call and remember the hope. I've cheated by using the same letter for word for the first letter. Remember, remember, remember. Not the 5th of November today, but the truth, the call, and the hope. And I'm going to focus mainly on the first of these today. So remember the truth then. This letter has all the hallmarks of all the other letters. There's a recognition at the beginning of the the fact that it's Jesus speaking. There's a commendation for what they're doing well. There's an acknowledgement of the situation that they're in. There's a warning about where they might be going or about to go wrong. And there's a future promise. Jesus acknowledges at the beginning of this letter that they've kept their faith even in the face of persecution. But then in verses 14 and 15, he says this. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, to understand this Balaam and Balak story, we need to go to the Old Testament. You can find it from Numbers 22 onwards. Maybe you can have a read of that later if you don't know the story. Put simply, Balak summoned Balaam to curse the Israelites before they could cross the River Jordan into the promised land. He didn't want them to do that. But every time that Balaam tried to curse the Israelites, he only spoke words of blessing. God prevented him from cursing them. And so, perhaps moved by uh, uh, greed, Balaam uh, suggested to Balak that he get the Moabite girls to entice the Israelite men into idolatry and immorality, knowing that this would provoke God to anger. Essentially, Balaam couldn't curse the Israelites, and so he corrupted them. Now, the teachings of the Nicolaitans, we came across go uh, when uh, we had that letter there. Uh, and remember, he said there, you hate the teachings of the Nicolaitans like I do. The teachings of the Nicolaitans was very similar. They'd taken a false belief of the gospel, that the freedom came in order that you could sin. It was a freedom to sin rather than a freedom from sin. 
Now, I said at the start of my message that this could well be a message for the church in the West today, maybe in the United Kingdom. There have been many times in the church's history when the church has been in danger of allowing the culture of the day to dictate its truth rather than scripture. In an effort to be relevant, we have at times been in danger of losing God's truth. And of course, we worship God of love. And if we love people as Jesus commands us to, how can we do that whilst also holding to the truths of Scripture? Well, friends, Jesus is clear in this passage that the answer is not simply to disregard the truth, to put it to one side. John Stott, many of you will know, was the longtime vicar of All Saints Langham Place, All Souls Langham Place, right? Uh, and a long time, a great theologian of the last uh, 100 years or so. And he died a few years ago. And just before he died, he asked whether he had a message for the church in England. And he said that all that he had studied, all that he'd read of Scripture, could be summed up in just five words. Do not be like them. He said it's the consistent message of the Bible from the Old Testament through the prophets, through the teachings of Jesus, uh, through the letters and into Revelation here today. Simply, do not be like them. That was his message to the church. It is an echo of Jesus' warning here in this passage. So how do we hold those two things together, love and truth? Well, visually, I see them as a pair of glasses. Some of you will wear them at home with two lenses in, one of love and one of truth. We need both of them, otherwise we'll end up going off balance or going in the wrong direction. We already see in the world where Christians out of love try to cover the lens of truth. But we can be in danger of doing the other as well. Maybe 20 years ago, our family dog, Danny, who was a little Jack Russell, passed away. He'd been alive for most of my life and, uh, and was alive through my dad's life when my dad passed away a few years before. And my mum was distraught at, uh, at Danny passing away. Uh, and she said, well, at least he's in heaven now with your father. And I, as a young evangelical, said, well, strictly speaking, actually, the Bible isn't overly clear about what happens to pets when we die. And she very angrily said, I don't care what the Bible says. Danny is in heaven with your dad. Quite rightly so. I had covered perhaps the lens of love and was only looking through a lens of truth. What can we do then in this? Well, firstly, we need to be students of his word to learn and to understand it more. And if we're in danger of allowing culture of the day uh, to dictate what we believe rather than our scriptures, then we need to go back, re-study, re-engage this God's always word for his church. I'm not arrogant enough to think that I've got all of the answers. The church has at times got things wrong in its understanding of scripture, but that isn't a reason for us to abandon it. It's a reason for us to go deeper into our study of it, to understand what Jesus is saying. The second thing we can do is we can pray. Pray for those in the church on the front line, those who lead us, our bishops, our archbishops, that God would give them strength and wisdom to keep walking with both eyes, both lenses intact, both of love and of truth. So firstly, we're to remember the truth 
from this passage. We're also called to remember the call. This is the call in our lives not to allow Satan to get comfortable. Verse 12 particularly says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And there's been lots of concern about the fact that Satan has his throne. Is this the place that, uh, that Satan was thrown down to from, from heaven as we read about in Revelation? It doesn't really matter because for two reasons. One, because even if it was his home, he's not there now. And secondly, that's because Satan has got lots of properties. He's happy to live anywhere that will give him the space. Jesus says here, I know where you live. And when I first read this, it could sound a bit threatening. I was remembered of that film, I can't remember what it's called, it's got Liam Neeson in it, where he's going, uh, it's very famous, I don't know who you are, I don't know where you live. A threatening voice, perhaps, but it's not the voice here. Jesus is saying, as he says in the other letters, I know, I know where you live. I know what is happening. The word for throne that Satan has amongst us is literally a seat with a footstool. It literally means Satan has got his feet up amongst you. Now, we may not have the giant temples of worship that Pergamon had, the obvious, perhaps, opposed to God temples, But we do have our own temples, I think. Some of them are obvious counter-Christian things, counter-Christian religious powers like the Masonic or Buddhism or astrology even. Some of them are even more easily acceptable, like an overindulgence of alcohol. There are betting shops popping up all over the place, continuing to do so. I've been walking around the parish boundary every day for the last month, and over the last week or so, there have been post-it notes appearing on uh, parking meters and on phone boxes offering sexual massages. I've been removing them and tearing them up and throwing them away. But it's not just out there as well. There are temples of these power in our homes, temples that go against God. There's a pornography epidemic in this country. Just over 50% of those aged under 35 say they they watch pornography regularly. Just under under 50% admit to watching pornography regularly. There's a website called Ashley Madison, which sadly still exists, specifically designed to help people have affairs. It's got a tagline, life is short, have an affair. It's got over 4 million members in this country. Friends, does it feel like Satan has got his feet up amongst us? And if so, what is our response? In this passage, we hear of Antipas, someone who lost his life because of his faith. I don't think, and I really hope, that nobody watching today is likely to lose their life because of their faith. But I wonder if some of us might be in danger of losing our faith because of the way we live our lives. We don't need to be overly concerned if Satan does have his feet up in the world around us. Of course, our calling is to fight that. But our first calling is to ensure that he doesn't have his feet up in our lives. Ephesians 4.27 says, Do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give him access, not even a little bit. Neil's going to speak more into this next week as we think about Thyatira and what personal holiness looks like. But this calling is the same as John Stott's warning in the first part of our passage. Do not be like them. Also, I suggest, do not be afraid. 
One of my favorite verses of scripture is 1 John 4, verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one in the world. It could say infinitely greater. We as Christians carry Christ in us and he is greater, infinitely greater than the one in the world. Let's make sure that Satan doesn't have any place in our lives. Make sure he isn't comfortable. And as we see people converted to his truth, give him less and less places to call home. So we're to remember the call then. And lastly, to remember the hope. Verse 17 of our reading says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is a reminder of the promises that we have in Jesus. And there are three symbols here. We've got the the hidden manna. What's the hidden manna? Well, it's manna that's hidden, uh, if that's helpful. But Moses was told in Exodus to take some of the manna, that uh, wafer-like honey-tasting food that came from heaven for the Israelites, uh, to take some of that, to put it in a jar as a reminder of God's faithfulness in the future. And there was a belief that this was either hidden uh, or, or taken up to heaven. But of course, Jesus is the true manna of heaven, the true bread of heaven. This is the hidden manna being referred to here. We've also got another picture of white stones. Uh, in a number of cases, they have great symbolic meaning. They were given as gifts uh, when you became victorious. If you won a race or something, you got a white stone on it. But they were also used in court cases for acquittal. White stones for acquittal with black stones used to represent a guilty verdict. And then a new name. Think of the times in Scripture when we see new names. Think of Abram becoming Abraham or Simon becoming Peter. It's always uh, partnered with a promise of future blessing. These symbols are the promise to us that we are to be victorious. I said at the start that this was a hard passage, maybe not as comforting as some others may be. Some key messages of truth in this, including a key message of hope. These are promises that we can have, Jesus in us, who is greater than he in the world, that we will be victorious, that we are no longer have a guilty verdict, that their future blessing will be enumerate. So Jesus says these three things to the church in Pergamon, which I think he says to us as well. Remember the truth. Hold to the truth of Scripture, even when culture goes against it. Remember the call that you have, not to make Satan comfortable amongst you. And remember the hope, the future promise and the current promise that Jesus is alive in you, And he who is greater is greater than he. He who is in you is greater than the one in the world. As the band come back to lead us in our favorite song, let's pray. Uh, Final song, let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for your words. We thank you that each one of these letters includes the words, I know. 
We thank you that you know us. You know where we live. You know what goes on around us and what calls for our attention. The houses of power that we're in danger of uh, engaging with. Lord, in a moment of silence, we lift up to you any of those places that we have allowed to become a house of power in our lives. We repent of those things. And we remember, Lord, that you love us and that you say that as far as the east is from the west, as far as our sins will be removed from us, help us to know that we are forgiven. We bind up the work of the evil one, not allowing him to have a place in our lives. And we turn away, turn into your truth, replace those things we remove with things of you. Lord, at times when we feel called or feel like we're, we're being led to follow culture, would you remind us of your truth? At times when we feel tempted, would you protect us from the work of the evil one and keep us holding firmly to that truth? And at times when we feel downcast, would you remind us that we are in you victorious, that we have you living in us and that you who is in us is greater than that in the world. Lord, we offer up our lives afresh to you today. Help us to walk your ways and to know your truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Sam.